from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. That's Valdez with an S, by the way. And uh, make sure you check out the podcast for this program, America at Night with Rich Valdez. We have um, all of the episodes archived. You want to check out anything you may have missed, some of the interviews that you missed, you definitely want to check it out and subscribe. Now, a couple of things, right? So right now, Disney, it seems to be in kind of hot water. They're, from what I understand, they're losing something like a billion dollars per quarter. They're losing a ton of money because of their woke agenda. And I think over the summertime, I played some audio of their president, then president, who um, who was promoting this agenda saying, you know, if we don't have 50% of our Disney characters that are LGBTQIA+, then, you know, we're missing the mark. And they, they put such an emphasis on having half of their characters represent something that doesn't really represent half of American society. And I think parents started to uh, take note and say, you know what, we don't like this stuff that's going on with Disney Plus, with Disney, with with everything Disney related. So they started to unsubscribe. And I was watching a clip yesterday. I should have tried to get the audio for you, but it was this little poetry type of cartoon thing where they were basically, you know, uh, indoctrinating kids. And I, I hate to use these big fancy words like indoctrination, but it really was the case where they were saying that, you know, America was started on the backs of slaves and they would chant it. And it was a really entertaining piece, but it was, you know, it was, I don't believe that to be true. I don't think America was started on the backs of slaves. I think slaves were used in in many ways, uh, but I don't think that the country was started on the backs of slaves. I just don't believe that to be true in any way. Um, Anyway, uh, that's a different story for a different day. But just look at who fought in in the war. Uh, There there were some uh, African-American soldiers, but, um, the majority of these were white guys fighting white guys over, you know, the king versus the colonists. Anyway, um, point is, they're uh, they're messed up. So they're losing money. They got rid of their CEO. They brought in their old CEO, Bob Iger. And Iger says he's going to lay off 7,000 workers uh, as the company's planning to cut back on costs despite beating the earning expectations and revenue growth to $23.5 billion in 2022. Uh, they're still in rough shape because now Governor Ron DeSantis uh, is poised to seize control of their what they call the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which is like a, its own individual county where the park is situated. Now, the, the deal hasn't gone through yet, but let me give you some of the particulars here because I think this is interesting. Now, Bob Iger is planning to lay off these 7,000 people to cut back on the costs of the entertainment and ESPN division, which you would think ESPN's making a ton of money. Um, I thought the sports talk was where all the money was at, right? News talk, eh, not so much. Sports talk, those guys make a boatload of cash. Anyway, he announced plans on Wednesday to restructure the company and eliminate a division that was set up by his uh, predecessor, Bob uh, Kapek. Now, the move comes as uh, Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, seizes control of the Reedy Reedy Creek Improvement District. Now, this is scheduled to happen. uh, I think it's gotten through one part of this Florida legislature. It still needs to go through another part of the legislature. But this is very interesting nonetheless, because 
DeSantis publicly took them on, you know, saying, hey, look, we, we don't like what you're doing. Uh, you, by the way, you're, you're milking this, you know, um, I don't know, decades old law that says you can have your own county, per se, with your own police, your own fire, your own this, your own that, and, uh, and be kind of tax free or whatever the case was. And uh, now he's, you know, positioning himself to take it back because Florida lawmakers are proposing to give the state full control uh, over the board. And, and actually, the governor would have the ability to appoint every member of the board that governs governs that uh, Reedy Creek Improvement District, which is Walt Disney Company's special district. So this is pretty interesting stuff. Now, the new bill was filed on Monday and would give the governor the power to appoint the five members of the board of supervisors. And... Um, the, the the quote here is that Florida is dissolving the corporate kingdom and beginning a new era of accountability and transparency. That's Brian Griffin, uh, DeSantis's press secretary, in an emailed statement. And the, the, this part of the story goes on. This is in Yahoo Finance. Uh, Reedy Creek is currently governed by a five-member board elected by local property owners according to its charter. Given that most of the land within the district is owned by Disney and, and their affiliates, the company has outsized uh, their own decision-making power. And uh, so it's interesting to see how these corporate boards work. On a separate note with corporate boards, my buddy James O'Keefe, I used to work for James O'Keefe back in, I don't know, 2014, 2015. Great organization, Project Veritas. Uh, there was like some sort of ouster. Um, they're trying to, to push him out. Uh, I think it's more hyperbole than anything, but from what I'm seeing on on the media, you know, New York Magazine put this out as some sort of big deal, like they're trying to get him out. I don't think so. I think there's just a negotiation going on. Uh, but uh, I was poking my nose around a little bit. I didn't get any information. Uh, but uh, that's a developing story that will keep you up to speed on. Maybe we'll invite O'Keefe on the program um, if, if he's available uh, to talk about that in the next day or two. But I just wanted to mention that. I also wanted to mention the um, the the big deal that's going on with Southwest Airlines. Now, this is interesting because Southwest Airlines has been under, uh, I guess, under the microscope ever since they said, you know what, we um, we are not responsible. Or they said we're responsible, but they, they, they basically, it seemed to me, this is just my take, that they didn't really fully own this scheduling disaster that had, I don't know how many thousands of delays and cancellations. It was just... Uh, outrageous. And uh, so they were up before Congress. And I probably won't get into that right now uh, because of time. But I do want to get into it because I think it's an interesting story how, you know, I think they're a relatively good airline. I've used them before. They were cheap. They were fast, kind of like the no frills type of thing, which I tend to like when you fly. And I, I don't fly a lot now, but I used to fly a lot when I worked in Project Veritas. Uh, part of my job was to oversee what was happening nationally in the organization. And I was in a different city every week for several months at a time which was fun, but not fun. You know, it's like fun if you're traveling. It's not fun if you're working. You don't really get to enjoy everything. But you do get to eat along the way. And uh, when you're having that, that crawfish in uh, Louisiana and New Orleans, or as they say, Narlands, um, it's pretty good. And then, you know, the next day you're in Los Angeles, you know. So uh, when you get to go down uh, Hollywood Boulevard and buy some tacos on uh, Hollywood Boulevard, some very authentic stuff, that's always fun. But I digress. I want to get into that, and we'll probably talk about that uh, maybe at the top of hour number three. But tonight we're going to get into a couple of different topics because the government, the FBI in particular, they said parents were dangerous, parents were domestic terrorists, and now the the House Judiciary Committee is holding hearings 
uh, in a subcommittee they have that's focused on the weaponization of government. Congressman Jim Jordan is going to join us to discuss that very topic. We're also going to talk about workplace surveillance. Is your job spying on you? Yeah, I think so. And, of course, we're going to get to a, a really interesting conversation on the Constitution, why it's been changed, and what the purpose of the Senate is. So uh, that's going to be a fun history lesson, and that's coming up as well. Plus, open phone America. So don't go anywhere. Keep it locked right here. I am Rich Valdez, and that's Valdez with an S, by the way. And you're listening to America at Night. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. At night with Rich Valdez. The chair and his colleagues continually use the moniker of protecting free speech. That sounds good. I hope they all recognize that there is speech that is not constitutionally protected. Racist, hate, incitement to violence. And I also hope and if the protection of true speech, of free speech, extends to all Americans. All right, so that's uh, Representative Stacey Plaskett from the Virgin Islands. And uh, she's blasting uh, House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan over their hearings um, on the Twitter files, as well as the uh, subcommittee hearing on the weaponization of government. And I want to get to that as well. But first, let me welcome the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Congressman Jim Jordan. Welcome, sir. Good to be with you, Rich. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. I'm fired up to hear what's going on. Uh, of course, I have to ask you my uh, traditional question. Are you wearing a jacket, yeah. sir? I'm not. I'm not right uh, now. All right. Uh, good. That's how it's supposed <laughs> to be. It's God intended. I do when I'm, a, yeah, when I'm around the president or when you're on the House floor, you have to. So I wear it then, <laughs> but... Uh, not my favorite uh, thing. So, um, so, so let, let's start off with with today, right? So today, the the first hearing ever of the uh, weaponization of government uh, committee. Uh, tell us what what what's going on. Well, we've had a number of whistleblowers come forward, and I, I always point out it's not it's not you know Republicans, conservatives, Jim Jordan saying this. It's it's multiple dozens of FBI agents coming at to us as whistleblowers telling us how political that that entity has become. We had the first uh, deposition of one on Tuesday. The second deposition of a, of a uh, second whistleblower is on is tomorrow. We have another one scheduled for next week where they're coming in telling us their story. They've been they, they've come to us over the last year and a half, but they're now starting to sit for depositions. And I expect many of them to testify. Um, and they're telling us, again, just how political uh, the place is. We learned a Tuesday in this deposition where they said uh, the, the, the Washington field office told the, the the folks in Boston. In Boston, there there were two busloads of people who came to the to the uh, rally um, here in, in D.C., 140 people. And the Washington field office said, we want you to open up investigations, preliminary investigations, into all 140. And, and the Baltimore, or excuse me, the, 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 the Boston field office said, right. on what basis? And they didn't have any. But they just wanted, just because they attended a First Amendment protected ra- uh, speech uh, rally, um, that is that is how serious this this is, and we we thought today we had we sort of framed it up with some great witnesses, two senators, uh, former Representative Tulsi Gabbard. I thought she was tremendous. Um, so we uh, I think showed the country like this is what we're going to be doing over the next two two years. This is where our investigation we think is going to go, but it really starts with those whistleblowers. 
And you, early in your comments earlier today, I saw some video of it where you referenced something that I think really needed to be looked at, and I'm gl- grateful that you're looking at it, which is how they put a threat tag on parents who were yeah. really just interested in what was going on at their school board. And I think yeah. this was egregious. What, what do you? What happens next? Yeah, well, we, the very first whistleblower came to us was came to us on that issue. Clear back in, in uh, November of 2021, uh, came to us and told us about the, 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 the tag that's been put on multiple parents. Those parents were investigated by the FBI. They got a call or they got a visit by the FBI. I mean, think about that. If, if parents are doing something wrong in a school board meeting, if there's real violence or something, of course that, that, that's not appropriate. But local law enforcement can handle right, that. Call so the you cops. have a county sheriff. Yeah, call the police chief. You know, you have local judges all elected. I mean, it's like that's where it's handled. But they wanted to create some federal crime. So they set up this Merrick Garland sets up this snitch line where people can report. And remember when he testified, he testified in on October 21st, 2021. And it was literally 16 days after he 17 days, excuse me, after he did the memo. And we asked him about his memo because the very first sentence of his memo said there's been a spike in harassment of school personnel and school board members. And I asked him the question. I said, what is that very first sentence of your memorandum that went out to all U.S. attorneys? I said, what is the basis for that? What's the evidence for that statement you made? And guess what he said? He said it's the letter from the school boards association that came five days Mm -hmm. earlier. And I'm like – the same school board association that has now pulled the letter back and said, we regret and apologize for the letter. That's the basis of this apparatus he put in place that is resulting in parents having the FBI come visit them because some busybody tattletale reported them on the federal snitch line. That is how ridiculous this is. And so this is one of the many ways we think the government's been weaponized. We haven't even got into the ATF, the IRS, the the DHS setting up a disinformation governance board as if they, they're the arbiters of what's fair speech, right speech, wrong speech. I mean, you got to be kidding me. So that's, that's the focus here. But it really starts from these agents, who, these brave agents, who are going to come forward and tell us what's going on. Now, Chairman, um, the, the attorney general is very angry with you because of this and because of the subpoenas. And he says that what you're doing is premature. How do you respond to that? We've literally sent hundreds hundreds of letters over the past two years. And they say, oh, no, you got to work with us. We have sent them hundreds of letters. We sent a letter to them on the school board issue, on a host of us. We've sent letters to the FBI, to the DOJ, to the Department of Education, to the White House, to all U.S. attorneys who got the memorandum from attorney. On just that one issue, there's a host of other issues we've sent letters on, and we basically get nothing back. So at some point, you got to say, okay, okay, we're going to have to, unfortunately, use the compulsory means to try to get the documents and the communications between to take the school board's issue between the White House, the Justice Department, the Department of Education, and the FBI, and the School Boards Association, because we believe, and we've already seen some evidence of this in emails, we believe they were communicating all were communicating with each other before mm-hmm. the School Boards Association ever sent the letter. The letter was simply the false predicate or the or the, 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 the the worked out predicate for launching what they wanted to do before they even started. Now. I agree with that. Uh, let's uh, switch gears now to to yesterday's hearing on Twitter and on free speech. Uh, apparently, mm-hmm. uh, you, you're being uh, highly criticized for for defending free speech and and for redefining free speech as as something that's bad somehow. Uh, yeah. But uh, right. you, you had this slew of people of Jaya Gotti and and Yoel Roth. Um, what was your assessment of yesterday's hearing with the Twitter executives? 
I like the term that um, uh, Professor Turley used. In fact, he testified in our hearing today. He wasn't at the hearing yesterday, but the, the term he used when you look at these Twitter files is it's censorship by surrogate. And, mm-hmm. and that's what happened. You had, you had, there was one email that was ex, uh, exposed and you know, brought forward in the Twitter files where the email said, this is from our government to Twitter. And it, it, the government says, Twitter folks, uh, it's from Elvis Chan, FBI agent in San Francisco. He says, Twitter folks, the following counts we believe violate your Twitter, your terms of service. Now think about that. Why in the world is the government telling a private company we think they're violating your terms of service? And, of course, Twitter took a bunch of those accounts down. So that's government pressure, coercion, priming, whatever that is. But it's, it's influence and, in, I think, in many ways intimidation because it's not just anyone from the government. It's the Federal Bureau of Investigation sending this to – Twitter saying, you may want to look at these accounts, wink, wink, nod, nod. Most of those accounts were taken down. And it wasn't like it was some terrorist threat or anything. It was like, I mean, you can sort of maybe understand that, but but it's like, no, 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 this is about certain speech and it's in the context of an election. And of course, we know they got so much of it wrong. They've apologized for it. In fact, yesterday they said we shouldn't have done it. So yeah. um, that's how scary it is. But I like that term censorship by surrogate because that's exactly what it is. Yeah, to me, it seems like it's the iron fist of of government with a hand and glove relationship with Twitter. And is is it too um, too much to is it too much of a jump to say that the the government was violating the First Amendment by way of Twitter? And is that legit? Is that legal? Is it not legal? No, I, I think it's the agency rule. If you're using someone else to do what you're not allowed to do, I, I think it's just as wrong. There's court decisions that, that, that point in that direction. But it's, it's almost when, when government's just sort of saying you, you should maybe take these accounts down because they violate, and they didn't use the term maybe, take a look at these accounts because they, we think they violate your terms of service. I think that's, I think that's sort of fundamental. Like why, why are they doing it? And understand, too, censorship is not just done willy-nilly. There's a reason for it. There's an objective. There's a purpose. There's a motive. And oftentimes the motive is political. The goal is to restrict political speech, which when you think about your rights under the First Amendment, your right to speak is the most important. But what the, I think the founders really had in mind was your right to speak in a political fashion, to call out your government, to, to petition your government, to redress your agreements. I mean, yeah. that is political speech that they're referring to. And that's exactly what was happening, that they were the government via this censorship by surrogate was trying to restrict. That's what makes it so dangerous. Censorship by surrogate, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Congressman Jim Jordan. Sir, thank you. Keep up the good work. Keep the pressure on him. We will. Thanks. Thanks for all you do. Take care. You bet. God bless. All right, folks, there is more to come straight ahead. We're going to get a report from the border uh, with Brandon Judd, who's scheduled to join us. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.
now. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Fentanyl is killing more than 70,000 Americans a year. You got it. All right, that's President Joe Biden at the State of the Union a couple of nights ago uh, where they say, shut the border, and he says, you got it. Uh, It's funny how he always becomes the most moderate to conservative Democrat there is when it's time for the State of the Union. Welcome back, America. It's Rich Valdez. Our guest this this half hour is uh, Brandon Judd. He's the president of the National Border Patrol Council. Uh, Brandon Judd, welcome, sir. It's good to be with you. Thank you, Rich. My pleasure. My pleasure. So, I mean, there's a couple of different stories here. Obviously, we've got fentanyl all, all over the place, uh, and it's becoming a, a bigger problem each day, at least in my opinion. Uh, and there's another story that's uh, from Fox News. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but um, it says Border Patrol appreh- apprehensions of Chinese nationals at the southern border is up 800 percent. What's the story with that? So when you look at this, and, and this is what's very, very frustrating to us, and when, when, when I, was, I was there at the uh, State of the Union to listen to that, and I was, I was extremely upset at, at his remarks. One, he didn't speak very much about it. Um, two, he deflected and he blamed other people rather mm-hmm. than looking at the issue and giving us actual solutions. And so when you, when you look at all these things, when, when he claims victory on anything – I go back to October when the number of Venezuelans dropped exponentially because he started exercising Title 42 on Venezuelans, and that was great. But the numbers only dropped for a couple of days, and then the uh, cartels, uh, they, uh, they adjusted uh, what they were doing, and they started bringing in another segment. That's when they started bringing in Nicaraguans. That's when they started bringing in Cubans. That's when they started bringing in a lot of other people that we weren't exercising Title 42 on. And so now you look at, at, at China. Um, Any time that you do not exercise the laws across the board with every single country, you're going to see the cartels exploit those loopholes. And that's what they're doing with the Chinese right now. They're bringing in an awful lot of Chinese. Um, they're advertising their services uh, throughout the world, including in China. Um, and anybody that's willing to pay them, they will get them to the borders of the United States, um, Mexico, and they'll cross into the United States, get apprehended, knowing that they're just going to be released into the United States. If we stop that release, that's the magnet. If we stop that, if we, if we don't release people into the United States after violating our laws, or in other words, rewarding them, if we stop that, illegal immigration will drop exponentially. And when illegal immigration drops exponentially, that's when we're able to go after the cartels. That's when we're able to go after the, all, all of the profits, the fentanyl that's coming in, the criminal aliens that are coming in, the aliens from special interest countries. We can stop all of that, but it all begins with illegal immigration. Because illegal immigration is what depletes our resources, what pulls our resources out of the field because we're having to deal with so many of these people that are crossing the borders illegally, and it's all cartel-driven. Now, this is concerning, obviously, because they're, they're exploiting the weakest link and whatnot, and Biden is the root cause of everything. But when you look at Chinese nationals, and again, I, I don't want to be bigoted in any way, but it seems that a lot of our problems are coming from China, whether it's fentanyl, whether it's spy mm-hmm. balloons. Yep. Uh, they're, 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 in my opinion, our biggest enemy. Um, shouldn't we be raising extra red flags when we have we should. A, an increase of 800 percent of Chinese nationals at the border? Absolutely, we should. I mean, all we have to do is go back to 9-11. 
um, and, and, and look at the, the individuals uh, that hijacked those planes, took down the World Trade Centers. Um, those, those people came into this country. They were known. They came in on visas. We knew who they were. We just didn't um, properly track them. We didn't properly um, look at everything that was going on. And so when you, when you look at, at people that are coming from China, we know that China does not like us, the country as a whole, the government. The Chinese government doesn't, doesn't like us as a whole. And so when you get this huge influx of people from China, you have to start wondering, what's the purposes? What's the reasons? Um, are, these, are these people actually fleeing um, um, harm or persecution in China? Or is there something more to it? And, and again, we're, uh, like you said, we're not trying to be bigoted. But what we have to do is we have to protect the United States. That's our first job. That's first and foremost. And, and you can do the job without being bigoted. You can start um, doing investigations into why. What's the purposes? Um, is there nefarious reasons? Or are they, in fact, um, just fleeing persecution? Um, or are they coming here for, for economic purposes? We can figure that out, but when you're constantly inundated with the numbers that we're seeing, we just don't have the resources to properly do those investigations. We can't vet people properly when we're dealing with five times the number that we normally deal with, and that's the issue with border security. And that's why border security is so important. It protects American lives, but if we can't do our jobs, then America is at risk. Folks, we're on with Brandon Judd. He's president of the National Border Patrol Council and uh, and their website, by the way, is bpunion.org. Uh, Brandon Judd, I'm looking here and it says Chinese nationals are typically charged more money by the human smugglers. Yes. Do you have any idea yes. why that is? Yeah, it's it's the, the, the smugglers, the, the cost to come from around the world um, goes up. So as, as you as you get further and further from Mexico, the cost goes up. The, the typical amount that we're seeing for people for Mexico is about $6,000, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, about $6,000. Once you start getting further and further from that, um, the, the cost for the cartels go up and they just pass that cost on, on to these people. Now, I, I make a good living. I, I'm, I'm not going to complain about how much money I make, but I don't have $35,000 just laying around to give to a cartel. Neither do these people. Um, if they did, they wouldn't be leaving China. Um, right. They don't have this money. So when they come over here, they're immediately going into indentured servitude. And that's what is so frustrating about liberal policies. You constantly hear um, these people saying, well, we care about people. We, we're concerned about people, yet it's their policies that is facilitating all of this trafficking, all of this smuggling that is taking place. And if it wasn't for those policies, these people wouldn't be going into indentured servitude. They wouldn't be going into the sex trade. They wouldn't be going into the sweatshops. They wouldn't be um, suffering everything that is associated with that long, arduous trip, which becomes very, very, very dangerous. We know that these cartels do not care about life. They will, at times, they will murder people. They, they certainly rape people on a regular basis, um, mm -hmm. and they abuse um, the, the, these people that they're, that they're smuggling. And so when you hear, um, you know, 
when you hear this, this, well, we care about people, all you have to do is look at their policies. We always, we want to have that honest conversation and you can't have an honest conversation. If all you're going to do is judge people by what they say, you have to judge them on their actions. You have to judge them on their policies and their policies are horrendous towards these people that are coming here illegally. They are facilitating all of the crime. Um, the, the policies are facilitating all of the crime that we're seeing by the cartels, and it's also putting these individuals' lives in, in great danger. All right, folks, we're on with Brandon Judd, president of the National Border Patrol Council. Uh, give us a second. We're coming right back to you. Our phone number is 833-4-VALDEZ. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez here with uh, Brandon Judd, president of the National Border Patrol Council. And Brandon Judd, I'm looking at a uh, article here that is being reported by the Washington Post. So forgive me for that. But it says Biden weighs a border deal that would deport non-Mexicans to Mexico. Now, this to me sounds kind of like the... Um, the MPP program that President Trump had in place during his tenure. What do you know about this and what can you tell us? Uh, so uh, a, a couple, I, I'm sorry, about a month ago, um, uh, Secretary Mayorkas came out and said that they're going, DHS is going to issue a rule um, that is going to be that if you do not uh, claim asylum in the first safe third country that you come to, you're not going to be eligible for asylum here in the United States. And you're going to be sent back to Mexico pending your, your asylum proceedings. That's exactly what should happen. That's exactly what the Europe That's the law, isn't do. it? No, no, it's not the law. Uh, unfortunately for us, it's not the law. Um, mm. But they can do it by rule. Um, our laws are that you have to claim asylum when you get to the United States. Um, but they're, they're, able to, they're able to implement rules um, that allows them, as long as the, the laws do not exp expressly forbid them from doing something, they can implement a rule. And if they actually follow through with this, it will be a game changer. I just don't trust them. I just don't think that they're going to. I think that what they're trying to do is they're just trying to say, this is what we're going to do. Give us time. When you listen to Vice President Kamala Harris say that we need to invest in the infrastructure in these countries, we need to invest in, in um, private businesses in these countries, yeah. um, all, they're, all she's doing is saying, just give us time, give us time, give us time. When in reality, they're not going to fix something. And, and let me tell you why that's not going to fix it. You can't invest in private com in, in companies in these countries. The governments are too corrupt. If you invest in these companies, all that money is going to do is go to the government. Mexico is extremely rich in natural resources. There are companies that would love to go into Mexico. They can't do it because of the corruption that exists. Um, and so when you, when you listen to her say those things, all she's doing is trying to kick the can down the road, um, try to convince the American people that they're going to do something when in reality they're not. Um, they just want to try to extend it out, get to 2024. That's all they're trying to do. So it sounds like smoke and mirrors and, and maybe a, a ripcord if they need one. Because I've always felt, look, they, they, what they couldn't achieve in, in terms of uh, legislation or amnesty, they, 
let's say they want amnesty and they say, we can't use that word. We can't. Let's just do this. Let's just have this chaos at the border, turn the border agents into travel agents, send people wherever we want within the United States. And when we hit whatever number we've agreed upon, then then we'll, we'll, we'll close the door. And uh, and I feel like this might be their their opportunity to say, all right, we're going to close the door because I can't imagine Biden leaving the border open and this immigration problem that we have unchecked forever. Or do you think that's part of the plan? I from what I've seen so far, I don't see any political will to do anything about it. When you when you look at what's all you have to do is look, look at the White House right now. Um, the White House, the West Wing is filled with political activists. That's what they have in there. And political activists, they don't care about the will of the people. They care about what, what they want to see done. Look at DHS, um, the political appointees in DHS. They, they all come from – I'm sorry, I shouldn't say all, but the vast majority come from um, activist backgrounds. And activists, they don't care about what's right for the American people. They care about the causes um, that they're mm-hmm. that, that they're advocating for. That's all they care about. And and we know that that the vast majority of these advocates want open borders. And so to think that Biden is going to go against um, his own political appointees, it just doesn't make any sense. And these activists are never going to want to see the border shut down. They're just not going to want to. I mean, Secretary Mayorkas himself, he even said it, that if he implements this uh, safe third country rule, that, um, you know, they're going to catch heck from the from the left um, really bad. And they will. And that's why I just don't think that it exists. Biden recognizes that you can't win an election if your base doesn't come out to vote for you. And if he upsets his base, then he uh, th- then there's the possibility that they just don't show up to vote. That's why he constantly panders um, to his uh, to his base. And, and a large number of his base are all about open borders. So I just I don't see it. I'm, I'm hoping I'm, I'm always hoping for the best. I just don't see it right now. We have there's no evidence whatsoever that he's going to do anything to shut the border down. I'm looking at a piece in NBC News from uh, looks like it was just um, today, earlier today. More migrants are crossing the northern border into the U.S. Uh as Mexicans fly to Canada and then head south. Is this a problem that that is uh, popular and is. uh, is it getting worse? It is a problem. Um, I've got 25 years on the border, so I spent eight of those years up on the northern border in Maine and Montana. Um, and, and yes, uh, the, the border is just absolutely wide open up there. When you consider that it is the, lar- it's the longest continuous land border between two countries in the entire world, um, and when you only have a handful of agents to patrol – that amount of border, you're just not going to be able to do it uh, effectively. And so when you look at the as, – as the cost rises, the, as the cartels start charging more and more and more to get people to the southwest border, they're going to start looking for um, ways to do it in, in, a, in a cheaper manner. And then, then that's when the competition comes in because these people aren't just flying into Canada and crossing on their own. This is also cartel-driven. It's just different cartels. Um, we got to understand that, that it's not just one cartel that controls all the smuggling on the southwest border. There's multiple cartels, the, the most dangerous, which is the Sinaloa cartel. Then you've got the Gulf car- cartel, the Jalisco cartel. You, you've got many different um, um, organized crime groups that are doing this. And so if they charge less money and it becomes easier, yeah, we can expect to see um, a lot more people crossing the border um, from Canada into the United States. Brandon Judd, if people want to support the work you're doing and keep up to speed with what you're doing at the uh, National Border Patrol Council, how can they find you? 
Uh, follow us at uh, on Twitter at BP Union. Um, you can go to our website and, and look us up. But but really, you know, this is all about Border Patrol agents. Um, you know, my organization, I'm the president of the organization that, that, that looks out and protects the agents, but I'm an agent myself. Um, what we want to do is, is every single one of us, we want the, the border secure. We want to be able to secure the American people. We want the safety and security of, of all of the United States. Start badgering your congressman. Call, write letters, write op-eds um, to, to your local newspapers. The more people know, the, the more um, uh, these outlets know that there's an interest in border security, the more they, they're the more likely we are to have an honest conversation. If we can have that honest conversation, we can get the border secure. All right. Well, we'll continue to beat the drum here. I appreciate you being with us, and Godspeed to you in the work that you're doing. Thanks, Rich. Appreciate it. You have a good night. You bet. Likewise. All right, folks. Don't go anywhere. Don't move a muscle. Keep it locked right here. We're going to get to some of your calls, some additional topics, and we're going to find out what's going on with the workplace spying, workplace security, or workplace uh, surveillance, I should say. Uh, we're also going to talk about what's the story with the 17th Amendment and uh, wh- why Why did they do that? <laughs> so we're going to get into that conversation as well. Plus, in hour number three, we're going to have a conversation with America in America's late-night town hall known as Open Phone America, where we have the open phone straight across America. You get to weigh in. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you, 833 833- Four eight two five three three seven. I am Rich Valdez. This is America at Night. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. No hair, no care, and live on the air, it's Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And uh, just want to give you a quick reminder that today is National Pizza Day, February 9th, National Pizza Day. Now, what's interesting about National Pizza Day is, one, I, I, I vaguely can't, I can vaguely remember the last time I remembered that it was National Pizza Day. But the reason I remember today is because I had the most amazing slice, not the most amazing, but one of the most amazing slices of pizza I've had in a long time. And it wasn't in New York City. It was in Miami Beach over the weekend. And I found a place called Pizza with a flashing light that said Pizza. It said Pizza and then another light that flashed and said Wings, Pizza and Wings. And this Pizza and Wings place, it was somewhere between Collins Avenue and Ocean Drive, I think maybe on 8th Street or 7th Street. And I went in there. It was open very late, and they uh, they had all sorts of flavors like um, um, garlic parmesan and you know a, a mango habanero and all these great flavors. And and I went there for wings, but then I saw this ginormous double jumbo slice of pepperoni pizza. Now I don't know about you where you are in the country and how they serve pizza. But in New York, they don't typically serve these large slices in many places. They have them, but not in a lot of places. But in Jersey, there was a place in Hoboken for many years called Seven Star Pizzeria. And Seven Star only sold these extra large slices that were like two slices in one. And they were huge. Well, this place had that sized slice of pizza and the pepperoni slices on it 
were the size of like sliced tomatoes. Like it looked like salami slices instead of pepperoni. It, this thing was phenomenal. It was such a tasty thing. Maybe because it was late at night. Who knows? But it was terrific. And I figured, um, you know, what, what better time to talk about that than on National Pizza Day? So we are going to continue our conversation with Dr. Bill Choby. We're going to talk about liberty in America, past, present, and future, a prescription for America. Talk about what's going on with the Senate. Why do we even have a Senate? And why did the 17th Amendment change the Senate? So keep it locked right here. You don't want to miss this lesson in history and civics. I think you're going to appreciate it. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. city that never sleeps 17 miles from madison square garden new york city it's america at night with rich valdez america's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across america and now here is your host rich valdez Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Feel free to chime in that way or give us a call, 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number. Now, I wanted to uh, remind you to uh, subscribe to the podcast for this program or the podcast, This Is America with Rich Valdez. It's my weekly podcast where it's all commentary and uh, make sure you click subscribe because we're looking forward to keeping in touch with you that way. Now, I want to um, just uh, go over a couple of quick headlines. Uh, President Biden claims that Amer- the American public is not interested in uh, the House uh, Republicans' pursuit of what is going on with evidence that may be found on Hunter Biden's laptop indicating that Joe Biden was influenced peddling. I think people are interested in that as long as we don't talk about Hunter and we talk about Joe. Uh, then there's the uh, story I was telling you about Project Veritas. Employees are now targeting James O'Keefe, trying to get him uh, into a vulnerable position. I don't think it's going to work. There is no Project Veritas uh, except for with James O'Keefe. And there's a couple of other things like Trump has been reinstated to Facebook. Uh, I think we they, we knew about that. That was coming a little while ago. And uh, the FBI paid Twitter to help Biden in 2020, and the Democrats are simply uh, just saying this is more theater from the Republicans. And when it comes to Congress or the, you know, the, the oversight function, uh, it's interesting because there's, there's committees uh, in the House, there's committees in the Senate. And the Senate is really where I want to put my attention here, and in particular, the 17th Amendment Right, because there's a book. It's called "Liberty in America: Past, Present, and Future: A Prescription for America," and the author is Dr. Bill Choby, and he puts together the constitutional case for repealing the Seventeenth Amendment. Uh, so, I want you to help me welcome Dr. Bill Choby. Welcome, sir. Thank you for having me, Rich. Uh, quite an opportunity you presented. I, I wanted to say uh, I did spend some time in Brooklyn years ago with my training. And, uh, of course, New York is much different than it had been then. Yeah. Again, well, 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 did you eat this. pizza back then? 
<laughs> oh, you have to. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Junior's is one of the better ones uh, in downtown Brooklyn. Anyway, so welcome, Doc. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I want to get into this because uh, it, it seems like a really, uh, I mean, this is one of those topics that is of interest to me. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think it's of interest to a lot of people who listen to this program. But it's one yeah. where I think many of us just kind of, um, we pout, we throw our arms up, and we say, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to repeal the yeah. 17th Amendment? Yeah. Well, you understand the history, of course, the 17th Amendment uh, came about because of a lot of corruption. Originally, senators were to be appointed by the state legislatures. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that they would be a check and balance on federal power. The uh, Senate with its six-year terms was supposed to be like the, the adults in the room versus the House where uh, there was a turnover every two years. But the principal purpose of the Senate oh, in checking both federal government, but it was the primary responsibility is to approve the appointment of uh, secretaries and of, of judges, most particularly Supreme Court justices. Uh, in addition to the treaties and matters like that, uh, their their purpose was to take the the needs of their states uh, to the uh, the legislative process and to protect the states. Uh, the the people in the House of Representatives, of course, represented the, the citizenry. But who represents the states? And the states, as a unit, had uh, specific needs as well. Remember, the states created the federal government. And this is one of the reasons why the Article 5 Amendment uh, pushes out there to change the Constitution through the states. But whenever this, uh, after the Civil War, of course, there was division at all levels, particularly in the Senate, and it turned in more like a, uh, the South versus the North uh, continuation of the, the, the conflict. And it came to a point where it was just so unpredictable that uh, even Delaware refused to have a senator for four years or so. And they had to do something. So the progressives that came along at the turn of the 20th century decided that uh, they would change the way that the senators would be elected and or would be selected into elections. And in that uh, in that process, the 17th Amendment uh, emerged as a, a way to do this. It was supposedly a good thing because it would um, minimize corruption. But you know the way politics is. But there's power, there's corruption, and that's just the way. That's the nature of the beast. Now, but, Dr. Uh, Bill, we'll I, I, I just want to clarify one point here, because um, uh, for my own understanding. So prior to uh, the, the enactment of the 17th Amendment, these were gubernatorial appointees representing their states uh, for the sake of appointment of judges and whatnot, like you mentioned. And they were pretty much all appointed by governors of each state. Is that correct? No, it's not. It was there. It, it was elections. Was, uh, it was selection by the state legislatures. By the legislature. Okay, that's the part I wanted to clarify. All right. So there, there was deliberation on it. It wasn't like one person playing king. But even so, because of the vast differences in the way, uh, the, the ill feelings after the Civil War, mm -hmm. uh, there was a continuation of a lot of the South uh, animosity towards the North that made it uh, a very ineffective uh, body. So with the 17th Amendment coming along, then these uh, the senators... Uh, had to, uh, their constituency now that were the back to the citizens and the Senate, uh, the states themselves lost uh, valuable representation before federal issues in doing so. Um, the, as That might sound pretty good at first, but there's a contemporary example here that I'd like to point out to you mm -hmm. what happened when senators became uh, or became elected rather than appointed by state legislatures. 
if we look at the election in Pennsylvania uh, with uh, John Fetterman, who was recently uh, had some health problems. Yeah. Uh, prior to that, we had uh, the Supreme Court uh, made a decision on Roe versus Wade. That decision was an affirmation of states' rights. The state's interests were protected in that they would handle those matters internally. I'm not talking about abortion itself, but just how this is done. But because uh, what should have happened, if the state, the senators had represented the rights of the states, they should have been happy about it and quiet. Instead, it turned into an election issue that then led in large part to the election of John Fetterman uh, to the Pennsylvania Senate. Now, this, if that issue, the state's rights were already protected. There was no reason for a senator to delve into that reason or to that argument to try to use it for political purposes in order to gain power. But that's a, a direct result. What happened in Pennsylvania is a direct result of the 17th Amendment. And it shows you just how the, the, the uh, transmission of power from uh, what it should have been a protection of states' rights into just another form uh, of Congress. And in that uh, process, I believe not only the people of Pennsylvania, but the people of this country were denied an opportunity to have the, uh, uh, the election of a qualified person. And I only say that because uh, it's pretty obvious that uh, Senator uh, Fetterman is, uh, uh, he's got some problems. And to a point where it's, it's questionable whether or not his, his logic and his, his reasoning can be considered sound. And in a position where you're one of a hundred of some of the most powerful people in the world, that becomes very important. But they, mm-hmm. my point is that they used a, a settled issue, a state-settled a state settled issue, to gain power through the election uh, of the general election. And as I said, it's, it's a consequence of this 17th Amendment directly. Well, so what are the uh, what are the state's interests in internal affairs? You know, first, we know the checks and balances. Of course, they go and they, they affirm like the judges. Now we had a judge that uh, a, a nominee for the it was before the Senate just recently, who was asked a question about Article Two of the Constitution, and she was totally had no idea what it was about. But yet, as a federal judge. That would be right. the basis of their decisions. What an embarrassment That's an that example was. again, you know. Here we go, an example of it becoming political, a nominee being there for political purposes rather than being there for the job of doing interpreting the Constitution. These are all consequences of the 17th Amendment. Now, as the administrative state grew after mm-hmm. the Civil War, the Interstate Commerce Commission came in, we started seeing these uh, federal bureaucracies come into play. And with that, because of the great overreach power, particularly through the, the court's affirmation of the Interstate Commerce Commission, the long arm of the federal government began to supersede those interests of the states. And for example, today we have the EPA going mm-hmm. down into West Virginia with the recent Supreme Court decision saying about their arm extension was too long. Well, how did they get that far? Where did the state say this is our our issue and that's, you know, yours is outside of it. That again is a consequence of the 17th Amendment. There's the state's rights to protect themselves in a lot of these things against the bureaucracy, the overextension of, of the bureaucracy or the federal powers uh, is not being represented. And that void 
by changing the original constitution is, is costing all of us uh, a loss of our freedoms to some degree. Dr. Bill, uh, stand by for one moment. I want to let everybody know about the book. It's Liberty in America, Past, Present, and Future, A Prescription for America. And it's making the case to uh, to repeal the 17th Amendment. The author is Dr. Bill Choby. He's our guest. If you want to ask him a question, you feel free. 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number. We're going to continue discussing the issue of states' rights on the other side of the break. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Well, thank you, Rich, and thank you for everything. I know you very well, and I have I listen, but I have a lot of people that listen, and they love your show, and I appreciate it very much. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez, our guest is Dr. Bill Choby. He's the author of the book, Liberty in America, Past, Present, and Future, A Prescription for America. And Dr. Bill choby has been making the case uh, to repeal the 17th Amendment, and we left off talking about states' rights. Go ahead, Doc. Oh, yes. Uh, <clears throat> with the, uh, the 17th Amendment, uh, it's one of many that uh, affects states' rights, but uh, I think part of the problem with the, the growth of the federal government and the acquiescence of its power We've lost uh, sight of what the uh, the real original intent had been, as far as how the states uh, fit into this this bigger picture. You know, reminding you that the states themselves are what created the federal government. It's a child of the states. It's not the other way around. And we need to reassert that because there's, as we can see, and there's various states carrying are trying a number of different ways to solve problems, particularly in the example of COVID, uh, that uh, can be. Um, testing labs for policies that can that can become nationalized. So it's very important, I think, at this point. But, you know, uh, many of us who are feeling the, the weight of government on our back, uh, particularly, and I found this, and this is why I got involved with this book. I mean, I, I had my due process rights violated seriously by the Board of Dentistry back, oh, my gosh, 40 years ago, uh, mm. in that they were an appointed group of people. And we find appointments everywhere from school boards, yeah. right up to uh, federal positions. And they carry the power of law. And if they uh, violate the civil rights of anyone under the color of the law, and we, we see this going on today with the FBI, by the way, mm-hmm. that there's uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1871. It was called the KKK or the Ku Klux Klan Act. It's uh, U.S. Code 42 U.S.C. 1983 for your audience to look it up. But basically, it it, uh, was um, developed to stop the people like the Jim Crow laws that were going on at the time uh, to make these people who were acting as official government agents using the power of the law to suppress the civil rights of blacks at that time. And what it it came to is uh, that individuals whose civil rights have been violated can sue the, um, the people who have offended their rights. And those individuals would not have sovereign immunity. They would have to pay for the legal fees and the damages out of their pocket. 
imagine what would happen if the local dog catcher down the road, you know, came in and, and killed your dog for no reason, or killed you, so whatever. But the point is that you could sue that person, and they would have to pay out of pocket to mm-hmm. defend themselves and damages. If that could be done the whole way up the ladder, we'd have a whole different country. But most people don't are unaware that that is the remedy that our forefathers have given us to constrain these incursions into our the rights of Americans. When I wrote this book, it was to, for me to understand what it is to be an American. What makes us really different? And it's, it's really the liberties that we enjoy. And the, the liberties meaning freedom under the constraints, some social constraints. But when we have uh, a situation where the powerful, the, the people with might, now Abraham Lincoln used the term might is right back in 1854. I didn't realize this until after I used it. It's a fairly common statement. But when might or power is determines what's right or wrong, then we're living in bondage. But whenever right or fair laws or just uh, rulers becomes powerful, then people are free. We are, we are free to operate in that uh, within the constraints of just laws. But when right becomes wrong, we live in chaos. And this is what we're experiencing today. What's the remedy? How do we, I know that you just mentioned the constitutional remedy, but uh, what do you think Americans need to do today in order to, uh, to, to bring about a change? Well, it has to have a change of heart and that mm-hmm. doesn't come easily. And unfortunately, you know, I'm, there's no gain without pain has been Franklin once said. Uh, I'm afraid that if people aren't willing to voluntarily change their hearts towards each other and towards their communities, and start getting back to common sense solutions, and particularly at the ballot boxes. And, and there's going to be great pain. I mean, we're, we are not, uh, we haven't seen it in our lifetime, but my gosh, go back to the Great Depression and, and the Dust Bowl days of, of the Midwest, and that was pain. Go back to the war, that was pain. And, but it changed people. When we emerged from World War II and the generation that, I'm, I'm 71. My parents and so many of their parents like ours had gone through a war and they were sick of the death and destruction. And they created a community and a society that was safe. And we grew up in that, like the little rascals, if you will. We felt mm. safe. We didn't ride around with helmets on our bikes and stuff like that. We weren't afraid of being uh, kidnapped. We weren't afraid of being sexually abused. We were free to grow and be kids. But that gradually changed in the 60s when there was a growth of the left and the rebellion. Concurrent with this, there was this uh, attitude that we didn't need God. It goes back, started started in the 50s, and what people need to understand that God's the glue that holds us all together. If we didn't Amen. have this higher power keeping us under control through our conscience or through our, you know, whatever happens through life, we'd destroy each other. And that's what we've forgotten. We've forgotten that there's God, and that's what Lincoln said right before the, before the Civil War. We've become so accustomed to our luxuries, uh, yeah, to now, all of our conveniences. With a minute to go, um, I'm going to tell everybody they can get the the book at drbillchobybooks.com. Uh, but mm-hmm. with uh, 30 seconds or so, just give them the uh, final pitch on why everybody should get two copies of this book. If you're looking for what America's about, what it is to be an American, this will give you the, the foundation from the get-go. I go back to when... The alphabet was created, and through all the different societies before, and how might versus right, and right, right versus might has been back and forth. So, if we just stick with it, make it right again, uh, we'll be free again. All thank right, Doctor Bill Choby, thank you so much. Have to leave it there. Doctor Bill Choby Books dot com. 
I appreciate you being here with us, sir. Good night. All right. Don't go anywhere. We're going to talk about workplace surveillance coming up right now. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. America. Welcome back. It's Rich Valdez. I'm here with you, keeping you company straight until 1 a.m. Eastern. And um, and of course, if you're on the West Coast, then, you know, do the math. Now, um, I want to talk about an article that I saw about a week ago. This article, interesting one, by the way, very interesting article. Um, every now and again, I'll look at different pieces, different places. And this is in uh, BBC.com. Headline, How Worker Surveillance is Backfiring on Employers. And it goes on to to list uh, how lots of things, but the main uh, um, uh, subhead here is uh, an increasing number of companies are monitoring that their employees are complaining. And the problem, it's often doing more harm than good when they monitor these employees. So I said, you know, let me take a look at this. I read a little bit of it and I said, we've got to get a guest on this because I think this is interesting as more and more people are at home and, uh, you know, I, I've always, you know, in recent years, I've, I've worked in a radio studio. So obviously, you know, there's recording equipment in here. There's microphones. So everybody can hear us. <laughs> but uh, I, most people don't expect to be recorded when they're doing their work. And they might sign something when they get hired and whatnot. But uh, it's a thing. It's an actual thing. And I want to discuss all of that with Michael Cups. He's uh, executive vice president at Active Ops North America, which is a um, – a software company for for other companies. So, Michael Cups, welcome, sir. Well, thank you. Nice to be here, Rich. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so, what can you tell us about about workplace surveillance? This is interesting because I think it's on the rise. It, 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 would I be right if I said that? You would, and yes and no. I mean, if you think about the traditional workplace where you have buildings that people go to and they may drive their car and use a, a you know, swipe a car key, a key card to get in the garage, and then they swipe it again to get in the building, and then they log into their computer. So surveillance, you know, then there's cameras all around those buildings and, and so forth. Surveillance has been there. It just wasn't as kind of personal as it feels now when we're talking about, you know, you're working on your laptop at home and you feel like your manager's watching you. So it's it's surveillance isn't new, but the the concepts kind of shifted a bit because of the the remote work and hybrid work models. Right. And, and again, just basing it on this piece that I was reading at BBC, uh, it talks yep. about one worker, an IT worker, and how he uh, was, you know, had always kind of did his work, but w- wasn't being monitored. Uh, but then came the pandemic and he started working from home and all of a sudden his company started using software to kind of monitor what he was doing. And it created like this stressful environment for him where he felt like if he was taking a phone call or going to the bathroom, it, it looked on their end like he was being unproductive because he wasn't, you know, using his computer per se. And yeah. and it seems to be not working the way it's intended to work because the guy wants to quit. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so when I, one thing I will say, we, we work with a lot of companies that have either done this type of thing or are considering this type of thing, and, and we help them roll this out. So just to put that out, out there, how we, we show them how to do it the right way. And there's a right way and a wrong way. And, and that article that, that you read, I, re, I read it as well. And it, the, the way that that manager was choosing to use the technology is the, is the absolute wrong way to do that. If, if the employee feels like you're just watching them to catch them doing something wrong, then you're going to have a really bad outcome, and that does d- deteriorate the trust between the manager and the employee and the employee and the company. And so that type of manager experience is really what we're hearing a lot about. There's also good manager experiences that focus on outputs, not inputs. Uh, but you know you don't get the, you don't see those as much in the, in in the in the journals. But the the reality is, uh, you know, some of the managers are struggling because they they grew up in their job being able to look outside their door or look over the cubicle and see the people working. And there was this false sense of productivity, maybe, if you right. will. And so, and now if they're trying to do that same observation tactic while your employees are home, it's, it's going to deteriorate that trust. It's not going to work. So when you're working with clients and you're thinking of, you know, that are considering bringing the product on and that type of thing, what, what are some of the reservations they have or some of the complaints you get from workers uh, or from these yeah. these prospective clients that um, where they're they're saying you know what I don't know if I want to do this type of thing you know is, is it going to work? Yeah, and that's a great quest, question, Rich. Because what what we advise our customers to do is 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 not about surveillance and and, and it's not about. Uh, measuring everything. So the biggest concern people have is this big brother notion that, that their privacy is being invaded. And so our consultation is always about, hey, that's not what you're in mm-hmm. there. You're not trying to see what they're typing on the keyboard. You're not even really that interested in what's on the screen. What you're interested in is the time spent and the applications used and the outputs. How, you know, how many of things that they did, if they're a claims processor, are they processing the amount of claims that you need in a day or a loan processor or things like that? So it's, it's about those outputs that are the important thing to keep the business running. And it's not about, you know, did they go to their banking site or did, were they looking for a new car or anything like that? That's, that's the absolute wrong way to, to use the technology. And one thing that we do advise our, our customers is don't ever capture screens and don't capture keystrokes because that is a massive invasion of privacy. And, but, you know, there's, there's some tech out there that does that and there's some managers out there that want that. And that's the ones you just don't want to work for. Right. And, and that makes sense. And I just want to remind everybody, we're on with Michael Cups. He's uh, executive vice president of a company called ActiveOps North America. And we're talking about uh, this notion of workplace surveillance and how it's backfiring on employees. I want to stick with you, Michael Cups, and I want you to help us understand some situations where for anybody who's listening who might be a, a business owner, small business owner, maybe a manager, uh, where they might say, I do want this type of software I, and, and the, the more positive aspects of using it and how it could help the business grow. So don't go anywhere just yet. Stick around. And if you have a question for Michael Cups, give us a call. 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number. Uh, phone number 833-4-VALDEZ. I am Rich Valdez, and we're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Uh, We're talking about 
workplace surveillance. And our guest is Michael Cups. And uh, during the break, I was talking to one of our producers, and he was telling me about a friend of his that had a job as a remote work job. And they said to get to, to take the job, you know, if, in order for us to hire you, you got to go out and buy a webcam and then put the webcam on. And we've got to watch you do your job for the entire shift. And it included like being pinged by their manager should they take a moment to look at a text message on their phone or whatever they would let them know like you're on your phone, get off, you know, and I just thought, wow, that's, that's pretty crazy. Um, again, um, it, it kind of emulates a, a um, micromanagement environment in an actual workplace. So this would be the closest thing to a very virtual micromanagement workplace. And again, I think some businesses maybe require that others, you know, realize that that could be detrimental, but irrespective of, of the outcome of it, um, I think I could see some employers wanting that type of thing. So Michael Cups, um, what are some of the, the pros to implementing a system like this? Yeah, well, first off, I would say anybody looking at you through a webcam, that's probably not many pros going along with that. I mean, that, that's <laughs> that's overbearing and, and, and invasive. Um, of course, we're all on Zoom calls, you know, and things like that. So you can do well checks in a different way. So, so I would say that's on the bad side. What are the pros? You know, what we advise people to do is look at two key metrics. One is uh, you know, work time on the aggregate, not what time did they log in and did they take a break at 9.05 p.m. That, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about. What we're looking mm. at is the time and aggregate spent working versus the time you didn't. And the reason that's important is two reasons. One is, you know, sometimes people are paid hourly, so they just want to make sure that they're getting that kind of uh, output and so forth. The second thing is during the pandemic, what we saw was, was workplace burnout become a big thing. And so some people were working at home and they felt like they had to work harder because they couldn't see their manager as well. So it was that two-way street. And so they were working 10 hours, 11 hours a day. And, and that's a big red flag for burnout. So you can use the technology to say, okay, on the aggregate, you know, Bill and Mary were working, you know, nine hours a day. We need to go in and intervene and say, you don't need to work that long. And you can cut, cut back on that. Make sure you're taking breaks. Make sure you're, you're doing those kind of things. So, so there's a balance factor that is a pro if using this type of technology. So it's, it's about a little bit about performance and a little bit about well-being, but it's mostly about those balance of getting those two things right. The second thing I'd say that's important and, and is a pro is those outputs. Right before your break, we were talking about if you're a claims adjuster, how many claims did you do today? Well, right. that applies to a lot of that, that applies to a lot of people. So you know, maybe you're maybe you are referring physicians to 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 patients and customers. Maybe you're filling out invoices or something like that. Well, use it on the output measurement. You know, not the inputs. Like, are they sitting there? Uh, you know, with a webcam. No. Focus on the outputs. How many claims did you do? How many physician referrals did you, you do today? And how many invoices did you get out? And there's usually a reasonable expectation that you expect from your employees. And as long as they know what that reasonable expectation is, maybe it's 10 invoices a day. And when you do that, then, you know, that's a day well accomplished. If you do 12, that's fantastic. If you do six, maybe we've got to talk about what, what happened in the day that did, didn't get the work output. That, make, that makes some sense. Um, and it, it's... Um I guess it's a give and take, right? It's got to work for your business model. It's got to make sense uh, all throughout. Now, when you're when you're implementing these types of things and and you get the the pushback, do you do you just kind of try to smooth it out, or what's the typical, um, I guess, um, rejection to not a camera, uh, but yeah. something that would uh, kind of measure this type of workflow? 
Yeah, there's there's two things that we would recommend. Is first, there's got to be a good communication plan up front. It's not surprise people like voila, we're, we're recording everything you're doing. Uh, that's a bad that's a bad example. So we always focus on a good communication plan. Second thing we do is train the managers to use the data correctly, not punitively, not in a in a negative way. But what's the data for? The data is to make sure the company is healthy, or the employee is healthy. And so if you use it for that purpose, then that's good. So there's manager training, which keep in mind a lot of our managers are this is all new to them too. And then the the third thing is is really just focusing on the education around the technology. For example. In our application, an employee can always hit private. And so maybe they're going to their bank to do some online banking. Maybe they need to go to their kid's school website, whatever. They can click privacy and then, and they're in private mode where, you know, no one knows what, the, what they're doing. And so the, it, it, it establishes trust when the employee knows what the technology is for and the manager's using it the right way. It actually can establish trust in a new way that enables this whole hybrid work environment. So it, it can be used poorly as we talked about in the very first part of the show, but if if there's a good communication plan and and everybody knows the purpose then it then you can roll it out quite quite easily and effectively all right now if anybody wants to keep in touch with you how do they follow the work that you're doing michael cups yeah they the you know we have a blog we also uh do a podcast called AO on Air. They can go find that on, on any of their podcasts. But most importantly, our website, it's, it's www.activeops.com. And we're happy to consult with anybody that's concerned about it. We can also help you with your employees. Because, you know, that, that article that you read, Rich, I mean, that is just such a bad example. I hate to see that an employee felt that way, right? That they just felt like yeah. they were being watched all the time. It's just an awful thing. And, and it doesn't have to be that way. Well, folks, Michael Cups, Executive Vice President of Active Ops North America. ActiveOps.com is the website. Michael Cups, I want to thank you for being with us. This was an interesting topic, one I didn't know was happening. Now I have to check everything here to make sure nobody's spying on me. <laughs> That's right, Rich. There you go. <laughs> thank you so Thanks much, so much for, for your time. Yes, sir. Have a good night. All right, folks, and there is more to come straight ahead. We're going to talk about uh, this and other topics. Plus, we've got open phones across America coming up at the top of the hour. You don't want to miss that. Those are always really fun calls from just about every corner of this beautiful fruited plain known as America. And I'm looking forward to that. 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-482-5337. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. So listen to this, right? There's this article here. I had this open yesterday on my desktop, and I said, man, I'm going to do this one in the um, in the midnight hour. But uh, I wanted to, and I didn't get to it. I did uh, tweet it out, so if you saw it, you know, lucky you. <laughs> this is an interesting story. Listen to this headline, USA Today. Three and a half tons of cocaine worth over $300 million was discovered floating in the Pacific Ocean, according to New Zealand authorities. Now, this is pretty interesting. I've never seen this happen before. But authorities in New Zealand announced that they had found this 
And uh, they say there's no doubt that this discovery lands a major blow to one of these South American producers and distributors of this product. And they um, they go on to say that, you know, no arrests have been made, but customs officials pointed out that this the magnitude of this bust is so big that it's worth roughly $315.2 million. Now, there's a picture of it, and there's... You know, it looks like a downed spy balloon, right? It's this huge black thing that's with a bunch of floaties around it, you know, like a big black garbage bag that, it, I don't know. I don't know how big it is. It's huge, though. It looks, uh, you know, like, like, I don't know, like three dead bodies taped together or something, maybe six dead bodies. It's really, it looks really big. And it's a bunch of little buoys or whatever and floaties on it. And it, it's just uh, amazing. And apparently what they do is they... This is a floating drop point, according to officials. They say the drugs were left by smugglers uh, at a floating drop point. The large size of the shipment splits into 81 bales, and it suggests that uh, they were probably headed to Australia. (laughs) A Royal New Zealand Navy ship hauled the seized narcotics on a six-day trip to New Zealand where the drugs will be destroyed, officials said. I mean, this is huge. I'm looking at it now on the deck of of the ship. And I don't know, it's like, let's see, close to 35 or 40 large suitcases. And they're all wrapped in some sort of garbage bag, pink garbage bags and black garbage bags. Fascinating. Anyway, I I did not know this is how drug deals were done. I've seen them say, oh, you know, I'll give me the money and I'll drop it off over there. You've seen, this is like the grand scale of it. Give me the money and you could pick it up at... 44 degrees latitude, uh, 22 degrees longitude, you know, off the coast of uh, New Zealand. And, okay, I'll pick it up in my yacht or whatever it is. Um, I just thought that was uh, pretty insane. Now, I also want to give you a a little taste of what happened in Washington today. Now, this is um, Jen Pasirkleback Pasaki. You remember her. Jen Pasirkleback Pasaki. Some know her as Peppermint Patty. She was on The Morning Joke today on MSNBC. And she says that these House hearings on Twitter that we were talking about earlier with uh, Congressman Jim Jordan, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, that this is just a word salad of right wing craziness. Listen to this. I mean, this is like a word salad of right wing craziness. Right. I mean, and if you are just a normal person, 80 percent of the country, by the way, that is not on Twitter and you're hearing things like Durham woke mobs, many of the sentences in Sarah Huckabee Sanders's speech the other night, you you tune in and you think, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, yeah. I am. I have to go buy eggs. Uh, my health care is too expensive. Uh, my prescription drugs are too expensive. Uh, I'm not sure about gas. It seems down, but I don't want it to go up. And it just feels very far away. So in a strange way, the, this Republican strategy right now has made them seem like this like right-wing elite society that is not connected with what is actually happening in the country. Talk about word salad. What did you just say, Jen Pasirkleback Pasaki? I, I, I honestly, I tuned out after the first, you know, um, the first go-round because this is, I think, their specialty. I don't think there was any word salad uh, at all. Jim Jordan doesn't mince words. If you missed it, check out the podcast. The guy's very clear. And I think all of them are very clear. And we'll we'll get to some of the audio on that. We had a couple of senators that joined that committee on the weaponization of government earlier today. But to me, it seems very clear. They want to know why the federal government paid Twitter uh, to help out Joe Biden 
to squash the story that his son's laptop had information where he might be getting kickbacks from China and other countries. That's pretty clear to me. But I guess there's some distraction because his son had an addiction problem and a substance abuse problem, and therefore, you know, they, they want to make that the story. But that's just a, a byproduct of the story. Anyway, we're going to talk about that. We're going to hear from those senators that testified today. And, of course, your phone calls on Open Phone America. 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number. I'm looking forward to speaking with you all right now. Don't go anywhere. It's America at Night, and I am Rich Valdez. never sleeps 17 miles from madison square garden new york city it's america at night with rich valdez america's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across america and now here is your host rich valdez Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media, your liberty-loving Latino amigo, and I'm here keeping you company straight till 1 a.m. Eastern. This is hour number three, Open Phone America, a tradition started by Larry King and continued by the late, great Jim Bohannon, and um, I'm doing it as well. The phone number, if you want to join the conversation, is 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-482-5337. And I want to hear from you. I want you to sound off on the issues of the day on this late night town hall here in America where we're giving our, the, the first late night reaction to all of the news that breaks in the evening and, and the big stories of the day. And one of those stories is that Bert Bacharach, the writer of, you know, certain big classics like raindrops keep falling on my head. Um, he uh, passed away at 94 years old. Um, Bert Bacharach was a staple when I was growing up. You, you know, people just knew his music. He was like a Wayne Newton, if you will. And he was an acclaimed composer and songwriter behind dozens of really mellow pop hits from the 1950s and 1980s, including, uh, as I mentioned, uh, raindrops. And uh, the theme from the movie Arthur, and he's been um, announced dead by uh, CNN. He was 94 years old, a major figure in 20th century pop music. Bacharach scored major hits in a variety of genres, from top 40 to country to rhythm and blues and film scores. He wrote hit songs for a wide range of artists, including Dusty Springfield, Dionne Warwick, Tom Jones, Neil Diamond, The Carpenters, and others. So... Rest in peace, Bert Bacharach. That is a shame. Now, uh, something that we can't say has died yet is the Green New Deal. And uh, lamentably, we've got Congresswoman AOC Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, my least favorite congresswoman from the Bronx and Queens, AOC All Out Crazy. She... um, she says, well, you know, we have to we have to look at 
electric vehicles and bikes, electric bikes are, are uh, what, what we need to focus on. Check this out. Well, what's your uh, reaction to the president's speech? Did he hit the right notes or the you, things you wanted him to expand on? I do. I think that um, that the speech was strong. Of course, there were certain points that I thought were um, especially compelling, a billionaire's tax and, uh, you know, quadrupling the tax on uh, stock buybacks. I, I, of course, think they should be banned, but I'll take a quadrupling on the tax rate, so... And one thing on the EV credits, the eighty thousand mm-hmm. dollars on those EV credits for SUVs. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's too high? That cap when it comes to affordability, maybe EV companies yeah. may raise raise costs. Well, of, I'd, of I'd, yeah, I mean, I'd certainly like to also see an expansion into EV bikes as well, and uh, more affordability for uh, lower tier options. Okay, AOC would love to just quadruple the amount of money coming in. Because she loves taxes, she loves spending, and she loves EV bikes. And I just, I look at this and I think, my goodness, I think it would be ratings gold. I think we could do it as a pay-per-view event if she would indulge this program in an interview. I mean, the audience, I think, would love it. Let me know what you think. I would love to to be able to really just ask her some interesting questions that, you know, would help us understand why. Just why do you propose this? Why have you been in Congress as long as you have and you've only had one resolution signed and that was to rename a post office in the Bronx? Not a single piece of legislation's become law. How does that happen when she's as popular as she is when she was the, uh, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, the member of Congress that raised the most money? And this is the, the genius she comes out with. Now listen, it's okay every now and again when somebody asks you a question when you're walking down the street as a congressperson and you don't have an answer, you can say, no comment. You can say that. But no, she takes every opportunity to say, well, you know, um, and just goes with it as if she knows what's going on. It's it's one of those things I think are just uh, um, shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have happened, but it did. Anyway, let us go to your calls. 833-4-VALDEZ. Let's go to Neil in Bradford, Tennessee, WCMT. Neil, welcome, sir. Thank you, Rich. How are you this evening? I'm doing wonderful. Thank God. How about you? Good. I uh, I love the way you call AOC all out crazy. I second that emotion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Okay. The reason I called in, Rich, I was thinking about Burt Bacharach dying. Hmm. He was truly a gifted songwriter, and he's another '60s music personality that they're they're dwindling on down. It's uh, hard to believe he was 94 years old, and he and Hal David, I love their collaboration together for Dion Warwick. Uh, like, do you, I say a little prayer for you, walk on by. That's my personal favorite of, the, of, her, of their collaborations for her, and do you know the way to San Jose? And I remember several years ago, Dion Warwick said in an interview, I don't remember it was with the Rolling Stone or which, where it was by Rich, mm-hmm. I read an interview. She said, when Bert wrote... Uh, do you know the way to San Jose? And I read the lyrics. She said, I said, Bert, it's a cute little song, but it will never go anywhere. And she said, and do you know what? I went ahead and recorded I was the first singer to knock the Beatles out of number one on the charts. Hmm. I thought that was an accomplishment right there. Yeah. Listen, I, I think, uh, again, I, I'm 44 years old, and I know uh, about Bert Bacharach. Uh, he clearly transcended um, various generations with his music. Um, I remember, I think he was in one or two of the Austin Powers films. And uh, it, it just, um, you know, it's a, it's a sad day to see a, a legendary entertainer like that um, 
you know, go on to be with the Lord. But it is what it is. How are things going in Bradford, Tennessee on WCMT, Neil? Good. As far as I know, just everything's puttering along at a normal pace. That's the way I like it. I wouldn't have it any other way, Rich. That's how we love it, brother. Well, you keep up the good work over there, and I appreciate the call. Hope to talk to you again soon. Uh, We're going to get to the rest of your calls and more straight ahead. Don't go anywhere because we've got more audio, more calls, and a couple of more crazy stories for you. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. That's 833-482-5337-833-4-VALDES. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. So, um, again, I always invite you to chime in online at Rich Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez. And uh, I'm looking at some of the comments. I got one here where I shared an article about the the border and uh, some of the complaints that the border chief have have, uh, have had with respect to abuse and whatnot. And uh, one commenter said, Rich, aren't there some vegetables that need to go be picked? <laughs> I said, that's pretty funny. Uh, but he probably wouldn't say that to my face. Then somebody chimed in on Twitter. I was on Facebook. On Twitter, somebody chimes in and put a picture of George Santos dressed in drag and uh, said that I'm a liar. I don't understand what's going on here. And then they got a picture of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Some of the unhinged, crazy lefties that are on uh, Facebook and Twitter, they, they can be funny. You know, I mean, they, they put the silliest things out there, and God bless them and their freedom of speech. But they're not as funny as the meme makers, I think, on on the um, right of center side. They're way funnier when they're when it comes to making fun of Joe Biden and things like that. You know, then again, um, what are you going to do? I mean, they're on the losing side of things right now. But I want to. I, I do enjoy the commentary and uh, keep it coming. You can also call the show eight three three four Valdez is the phone number eight three three four eight two five three three seven. And uh, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment. Um, but I wanted to. Um, what did I want to do? Does anybody remember what I said during the break? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Okay, me neither. All right, so we are going to continue with the calls. There was an article that I wanted to go to, but it's slipping my mind. Let's go to Tim in Hayes, Kansas, KRVN in Lexington, Nebraska is how he's listening. Uh, Tim, what's on your mind? How are you? Hello, Rich. How are you doing tonight? I am pretty dandy with a capital D, sir. Great. Well, so I had an interesting conversation with my uncle who started working in computers when they first were a thing in like 81 or 82. He's worked for Microsoft and HP. And since this chat GPT thing came out, um, he has asked it to perform advanced level coding, you know, the kind of stuff he still gets paid for being a 40-year veteran. Mm-hmm. And said this thing can do anything he can do, and we got to discussing other things it might be doing. He told me I should be using it for all types of applications because it can write papers, it can do this. So I was wondering, you know, now in your show prep, maybe if you can ask ChatGPT to tell you 
like the top 10 reasons AOC is the worst, <laughs> you know, legislator we've ever had and see what it'll come up with. That's a great idea. And, you know, it reminds me of um, the first story that we did on this was a, a um, chat GPT rabbi who created a sermon for a synagogue. And I thought that was just crazy. And and then I just kept finding more stories on on chat GPT doing all these different things. And it looks like Bing has just um, started using it for, for their search function. But one of the things that I, I'd heard was that they're using it for music radio where they do things like, you know, and up next we've got, you know, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head by Burt Bacharach. I'm ChatGPT. Oh, we'll right really? <laughs> yeah. Small radio wow. stations are, are using that uh, and, and this uh, AI voice to do, you know, because radio uh-huh. guys in music don't typically do the long segments that we do here and because it's talk radio. So in music radio, they can get by with, you know, a 20-second introduction during the beginning of the song, and then, you know, they're, they're, they're just changing a song later. And I'm not trying to put down music radio people. I'm just saying there's some stations doing that um, and, you know, not morning radio people that have contests and whatever. But it, I thought it was just remarkable that, wow, you would consider replacing a music radio personality with chat AI, you know, some sort of AI figure and voice. And it's just remarkable. And it made me think, imagine if they tried to do that with talk radio people, like <laughs> kind of like what you're saying, you know, coming up with these 10 reasons that, you know, they could come on and say, all right, the top 10 reasons AOC is a horrible legislator because, and I wonder if in a few years, you know, I'll have a competitor and it won't even be a person. Well, and it kind of seems like right now it's unbiased enough to field any question you give it. Whereas if you ask Google, what are the top 10 reasons she's bad? It wouldn't have anything to come up with. It would have no source material. This thing is so right. fresh and wide open. I, I think it can be equally leveraged by both sides. And all jesting aside, I think it is going to be leveraged very shortly by the left, if not already being done so covertly. And that some, we need to get up there that just regular people need to be hopping this and being like, hey, build me the very best conservative website to convict liberals. And it'll have billions of research points to, to actually figure out what will convince liberals. That's interesting, man. That's It's a great point. I appreciate the call. Um, what's going on in Hayes, Kansas? Uh, so we had a good big snow. We've had a terrible long drought. It's mostly agricultural weather, but we just had a break in the super cold snap, and we're getting ready for calving season. All the cattle out here are getting ready for spring calving, so that's kind of what I'm into, that and what? live events, weddings and stuff. and yeah, I hear that, yeah, brother. What's the weather like right now? Uh, right now it's about 25 degrees and perfectly still, no wind. Wow. Sounds a little chilly. <laughs> uh, Godspeed to you, my brother. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it, Tim. And uh, thanks for listening. I do appreciate it. Let's continue uh, with our buddy Matt in uh, North Carolina. Matt, what's going on? You're on with Rich. Rich how are you doing? How Good, are, thank how you. Are, how was your relatives in Pennsylvania with the wood heater? Ah, yes. That's that's my brother. Yeah, he's actually in Jersey right now, but he was out there over the weekend because um, this last weekend I went to Miami. He went up to PA because it was when I left to the airport, it was six degrees. And I asked my Alexa speaker, uh, how cold is it going to be? And it was going down to three degrees last weekend. So um, he went up there to make sure things didn't freeze and that that, that stove was cranked up. Uh, but thank God everybody's doing good. What's going on with you in Moorhead City? Uh, well, I'm, I'm uh, in the middle of nowhere, uh, 80 miles north by a straight line from Moorhead City, give or take. It's 62 degrees with no heat on. Hey, 
62 degrees is 62 degrees. I'll take it. Especially with no heat. Especially in this day and age where heat costs so much money, right? You know, in the Biden era, it's like, man, I'm using I'm using a, the the minimal amount of heat possible. And uh, I'm glad that you could, you know, even though you're 60 miles away from Moorhead, that you could still catch the WTKF signal where you are. That's really cool. Now, I understand you, um, you're looking to receive a gift from uh, Congresswoman AOC all out crazy. Well, yes, sir. Oh, well, I heard you earlier because, you know, I can't miss your show. There's no Thank way. You. I make my own schedule like I told Tom. I can't miss this. But, uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay. But uh, like I said, I make my own schedule and I have insomnia. But uh, the great idea of what I think I heard on your show earlier was – AOC, all out crazy. I wasn't supposed to say that. That's your, <laughs> that's your thing. Nah, you feel free. Good. It's for you. It's good. But uh, <laughs> she likes electric bikes. And I told Tom, I said, I could use one. I want her to send me one and postpaid. I could usually go, <laughs> I could usually go downtown. You know, it's only a couple miles. I, I think the scary part here is I think you'd probably get one if you asked for it. I think she'd say, sure. You see, people outside of my district are asking for this stuff. We've got people in North Carolina asking for these things. We need more electric vehicle bikes and uh, or what she called them, EV bikes. And uh, I, I just think this is uh, – and listen, I'm not against the EV bike in any way. I'm, I'm all for it. I like the Tesla. I don't care. I, I drive a V8 5.4-liter Ford Expedition, right? That's what I drive. But I do like the electric cars. Um, but I still drive a big gas-guzzling SUV because you know what? When push comes to shove, I'm the one pushing and I'm the one shoving, right? <laughs> I floor that baby and it goes wherever I tell it to go. Snow, sand, you name it. Nothing really gets in my way. And uh, on an EV bike, eh, might be a little bit easier to knock me over. But um, listen, if you think you can get around on an EV bike, more power to you. I do think AOC might send you one, though. Really? Yeah, I think so. She's never met a, a, a part of the government that she didn't want to give away. So if she could find a way to give you money or a voucher or something where she could say, look, we've got to help these people out, uh, I think they're going to try. Because ultimately, that's what it comes down to. And, and and it's a sad state of affairs, but we are slowly, maybe not so slowly, maybe it's kind of um, quickly, uh, becoming a society where there's an expectation of being supported by the government share a story with you. A couple of years ago, I had to get something at Home Depot and I was with my brother, the one from the farm in Pennsylvania. And um, we went to Home Depot, it might've been Lowe's. And it was one of these big box, um, you know, um, home improvement places. And there was a young man there, very young and seemed like a really nice kid. I asked him for help with something and he got it for me. And I was like, all right, super. And then I said, you know, let me, let me get a sense of what's going on in his young mind. He's probably 17 or 18 years old. And I, you know, and I asked him, um, I was like, oh, have you been working here for a while? He was like, yeah, yeah, I've been working here for a while. I was like, how do you like it? He's like, oh, it's pretty good. And I said, oh, that's cool. And I was like, it must be nice making money. You know, I remember being young and getting one of my first jobs. And he was like, yeah, yeah, it's cool. And uh, I said, whose job is it to take care of you? And he said, well, it's the government's job. I just do this to have extra money. And I thought, good Lord, we're in bad shape. Anyway, Matt in Moorhead on WTKF, WTKF. Uh, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Your calls and more straight ahead. It's Open Phone America, 833-4-VALDEZ. We're coming right back. 
Valdez. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. It is Rich Valdez. I'm looking forward to speaking with you guys. And I wanted to just r- remind you of a couple of things. One of the things is that if you missed any part of the interview that we did with Jim Jordan or with Brandon Judd or the rest of our guests from earlier today in the hours uh, previous to this one, then you need to be subscribed to the podcast of Rich Valdez, America at Night, because that podcast is available every day. And we've got a, a kick-butt crew in the control room that makes sure it's up relatively quickly. I'd say an hour or two after the show ends, that's available for you to, to check out on 10 different streaming platforms. And here's the kicker. It's absolutely free. But wait, there's more. Yes, you can get another podcast if podcast is your thing called This is America with Rich Valdez. That's my uh, podcast I've been doing for a long time. You can also get that one. Short, uh, straight, punchy to the point, and um, that's also free. Just make sure you click that subscribe button and um, do what you got to do. Share it with a friend. Enjoy it. Um, Now, we've talked about that. We've talked about what we talked about earlier. We're going to get to... I want to circle back to the Jim Jordan stuff and play you some of the comments that those senators had. But I wanted to also touch upon this. Disney is laying off 7,000 employees because they're saying the streaming boom is coming to an end. Now, I would say I don't think the streaming boom is coming to an end. I would say the programming has become crappy and people are less interested. Both from the perspective of wokeness And from the perspective of when I first got, I'm going to, what's it called? Hulu, right? Hulu or Hulu Plus. When I first got that streaming platform, I I thought, man, this is great. This is a good service. There's a lot of great programs on here. Now, you can't see half the things you want to see. They're just not available. Uh, I remember, you know, I used to watch uh, Law & Order with Ice-T and Mariska Hargitay. And it rarely updates on there. So many of the shows that I enjoyed watching, I had to go and now get another streaming uh, Peacock in order to watch those shows. And I said, you know what? This is becoming problematic. So I canceled my Hulu. Then I got it back because there was a show that I liked and I I wanted to, it was only available there. So I went back. But my point is, I think a lot of people are cutting the cord. And with that, 7,000 people are, are losing their jobs. Now listen to this. CEO Bob Iger is looking to cut costs at Disney because they just they they added some new subscribers after losing a ton. So it's a it's a tough thing here, and uh, I think they're they're losing something like a billion dollars a quarter is what I read somewhere. But this is tough. They spent $46 million to attract the, the, the last 200,000 subscribers that they just added. And uh, it seems like it's not enough. Uh, it says there's an addition of uh, 1.2 million members. Hulu and ESPN Plus similarly have very slow growth. 
each of them adding only 800,000 and 600,000 respectively. So they're just not growing enough. We also saw the fall of CNN Plus. And this doesn't mean that all streaming is is dying. I don't believe that to be true because I think Netflix is doing okay, although they weren't for a little while. Uh, I know people still, you know, are, are faithful and loyal to Netflix. Uh, but it's because a lot of people have gone to niche uh, or niche programming where they can get exactly what they want. And this is something I found with podcast where, you know, I don't know, five years ago, somebody said, you should do a podcast. And I said, you know, I don't know what a podcast is. But in hindsight, I look at what's going on there and I say, you know, this podcast stuff is fascinating to me because more people will listen to you in, in some situations on your podcast than they will on the radio. And the radio already reaches millions of people. But the reason why is because they want to listen to the entire show. And I know we have great listeners on this program that listen to the entire show, but they also want to do it on their time. And, you know, I've had listeners here on this program say, you know, I like to call into the show, um, but but I, I would like to call into the show, but I can't because I'm at work and I listen to you on my way to work, but at work I can't listen to you. And then when, by the time I get out of work, you're not on the air anymore. So they told me they, they listen to the podcast on the way back. I said, hey, that's cool. So I, I know there's so many different ways to listen, uh, but with people having the ability to watch and, and stream things when they feel like it, it makes sense to me why you have to remain very competitive. So Disney Plus offering, uh, you know, you, now you combine their their woke agenda with their with their kind of advancing the cause to have half of their characters be gay or lesbian or LGBTQ plus IA. And I think people start to say, look, this isn't really what I signed up for when I signed up for Disney. And that's why I think they're losing subscribers, even though they gained 200,000. It cost them a ton of money to get this, those subscribers, and I don't know how quickly they're going to turn a profit. So henceforth, they're firing 7,000 people. Now, this is problematic for sure. If you're in the, um, if you're in the business of, of Disney, you know, uh, you're, you're in bad shape. you got to clean things up. Now, speaking of cleaning things up, as a kid, I remember the smell of, you know, lavender from a cleaning product found in every Hispanic home. There's two of them, right? They're competing brands. One is called Mistolin, and the other one is called Fabuloso. Now, Fabuloso is probably the category killer in purple cleaning liquids uh, that smell like pine, if you will. Uh, and there's a, a story on Fabuloso that we're going to get to straight ahead. But first, I'll give you the phone number, 833 833-4-VALDEZ, and that's Valdez with an S. If you want to chime in online, feel free to do so. Don't go anywhere. There is more to come straight ahead. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. I am Rich Valdez, and we were just talking about um, 
cleaning products. And one of the ones that are familiar in many Hispanic households and others, but it's a Hispanic product. It's called Fabuloso. And it's the purple bottle, little yellow cap, uh, usually. And it comes in a few different, uh, I'm going to call them flavors, but they're not really flavors. They're different uh, scents, if you will. But uh, there is an article here in People Magazine. It says Fabuloso has issued a recall on 5 million bottles of the cleaning product due to possible infection-causing bacteria. Now, whenever I see this, I think, this is a disinfectant soap, right? I mean, this is a cleaning product. How on earth is something that is supposed to clean have an actual bacteria in it? But we will find out. Now, Fabuloso has announced this voluntary recall of several multi-purpose cleaners. The company recalled 4.9 million bottles that were purchased, uh, excuse me, produced in the United States. Look at that. Who would have thought Fabuloso is made in the USA? Now I'm going to buy it even more. Um, from December 14th to January 23rd due to inadequate preservatives and a risk of bacterial growth, according to a news release issued by Fabuloso. The company uh, recalled these bottles because they said that pseudo, pseudo, pseudomonas aerogesin, blah, 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 blah. I can't pronounce that word. It's going to take me a while uh, to figure out the name of this disease is. But um, I'll give it one more shot. Pseudomonas aeruginosa and pseudomonas fluorescens are environmental organisms found widely in soil and water. And people with weakened immune systems and external medical devices or underlying lung conditions who are exposed to those bacteria face a risk of serious infection that may require medical treatment. The release continued that the bacteria can either enter the body if it's inhaled or through the eyes or through a break in the skin. And they usually affect people with compromised immune systems. So that's what's going on. And this was um, issued to the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. And I was just telling um, uh, Alex Hinton in the studio about the the popularity of this in the Hispanic household. Latinos love Fabuloso. And I was telling you, my mom was actually partial to King Pine and and uh, and vinegar. But then there was, you know, my dad who did use Mistolin or Fabuloso with a couple of drops of bleach. And people would always ask when he did the mopping, uh, what is that? What What are you cleaning with? Why does it smell so clean in here? And it was always incredibly popular. And so that's why I think it's way more than Hispanic households that are using uh, this lavender-flavored cleaner known as Fabuloso. But uh, if you have any stories about lavender or Fabuloso, I'm welcome to uh, hearing those. So let's give out that number, 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-4-VALDEZ. Let's go to Charleston, South Carolina, WTMA. Robert, welcome, sir. You're on with Rich Valdez. Thank you, Rich. I just want to let you know that, you know, I lived in Dresden, Germany until about 18 years ago, and um, I know somebody a generation older than myself, and she uh, she was on the Technical University of Dresden, the Dresden University of Technology. She taught English there, and uh, and before the fall of the wall, 
and um, she liked lavender. She had her house smelling nicely like lavender. But I think lavender actually is a deep continental European kind of a thing. And of course, I did, and Spain would have fit into that category. And maybe it came from Spain to Puerto Rico. That's probably what happened. That's why maybe some people in America, it could have come to via Europe rather than via via the Spanish-speaking world as well. As well. There's a good chance of that, in fact, I would say. Yeah, it just sounds like you're jealous. That's all it sounds like to me, Robert. But thank you. Uh, and it was in Brooklyn, not Puerto Rico, that we were using uh, our lavender fabuloso. But thank you for the call and trying to redirect the the history of lavender somewhere into Europe. Your Eurocentric comments are rejected tonight, sir. They are rejected. Anyway, we will continue with your calls and more momentarily. Uh, but I want to um, talk a little bit about Southwest Airlines because Southwest was uh, in the hot seat today. Uh, so before I get rolling on that, uh, I'm, we're going to take a quick pause, and then we will come back. So don't go anywhere, and feel free to give us a call, 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-4-VALDEZ. I'll be right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. This is America. This is night. This is Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. So I wanted to talk about Southwest Airlines, right? Uh, because they're a good old American company. They're not a European airline. They're an American airline. And Southwest uh, had their executives in the hot seat today in Congress. And they were talking about a number of things, Um uh, First, I want to give you a little bit of the audio here. Let me cue this up here. Uh, we've got Watterson, who is the one of the, the chief operating officer, Andrew Watterson, saying that the airline did not have an adequate plan nor a backup to deal with the ripple effect from the winter storm cancellations and uh, the crews that were pretty much stranded at Snowdrift Airport. So check this out. Why did this happen? Let me be clear. We messed up. Fantastic. <laughs> we messed up. But he goes on to explain that there's more. It was a software problem, this, that, and the other. Listen to this. Our high rates of cancellation in Denver and Chicago, where 25% of our flight crews are based, cause our crews to be displaced. At this point, the disruption changed from a weather event that all airlines experienced to a crew event that was unique to us. Now, they messed up, and this was unique to them. Now, it goes on, the uh, Flyers rights president, Paul Hudson, says the airline might be shortchanging passengers um, because they're trying to accommodate their investors instead. Listen to this. Under the current system, airlines are actually incentivized to provide bad service. Good service costs money, and bad service saves money. And that money can be used for dividends, stock buybacks, and executive compensation. Now, I'm not going to get into that fight because I, I don't even believe that. I can tell you, I took, uh, I'll give them a, a shout out, American Airlines. I took American Airlines to Miami uh, over the weekend. And um, as I was approaching the gate, they said, hello, would you like extra leg room? And I said, I would love that. Is it free? And they said, it sure is. And I said, 
I'll take it. So then I get my extra leg room. And when I get there, the lady comes by and she says, would you like anything to drink? And I said, I actually would. Um, and she asked me what I wanted. And I told her I'd like Tito's and club soda. And I went to pay and she said, oh, no, they're free in this aisle. And I said, oh, wow, thank you. So they gave me a free seat with free leg room and free drinks. I mean, I have no complaints with American Airlines. We took off on time. We landed on time. The temperature was good. There was no turbulence. And the pilot sounded great when he was doing things like, all right, folks, we are uh, approaching uh, Miami International Airport. Everything's hunky-dory. We're right on time. I loved it. It was a great flight. Coming home was a little bit different, but um, and it was a different airline coming home. But all I could say was I enjoyed it. So I, I, I can't say that airlines are in the business of doing things just for this badly for the sake of, of their profits. No, I don't, I don't believe that to be true. So I think this guy is um, a little bit full of himself here, this um, Paul Hudson. And again, in that, you know, I don't know Paul Hudson. Maybe he's a listener and he's a big fan of the show. I love you, Paul Hudson, but I just disagree with what you're saying. <clears throat> now, there's one more that I want to play for you here. Uh, Casey Murray, president of Southwest, Southwest Airlines Pilots Association, says the airline has not updated its technology nor staffing procedures. Now, this, I would say, this is a, a, a reasonable critique because this is part of what happened with that big glitch where thousands of people were stranded. Listen to this. What our pilots saw and have known for years is that Southwest struggles to manage nearly any disruption, regardless of the cause. Our recent history and the data shows a pattern of increasingly disruptive operational failures, misprioritization of resources, and worst of all, a hollow leveraging of our cult culture to cover up poor management decisions. Now, listen, that stuff is no bueno. And I, I know that there's things like that that happen where they overcharge you. They don't give you your money back. Most of this happened during COVID because these people would have lost their shirts if they weren't ripping people off. And I think that's just God's honest truth. It, it was like, you know, we had people skipping seats. There were half the people on the planes. The, the cost of fuel has gone up now. So I think, you know, it, it, that was the incentive. The the government kind of incentivized them to, to rob you blind. But I think uh, things did calm a little bit. It's still very expensive. I, I used to, during the Trump years, I, I had a girlfriend in in South Florida, in Fort Lauderdale, and I used to go two, sometimes three weekends a month, and I was buying round trips when it was a very affordable for a $50 round trip not that long ago. Um, my max usually was $99 round trip, and I got it pretty much all the time. And so anywhere between 50 and 100 bucks, I was buying a round trip. And that's not happening today. I mean, you know, now today the the cheapest deal I think I've seen to to Florida uh, to South Florida is probably like one hundred and fifty dollars. But this is what happened with the Southwest people, right? So their their COO apologized and said, "Hey, look, we screwed up." Uh, the Senate panel was there expressing that, you know, they they better step up and and prove that we can have confidence in their technology. The pilots' union president, who I mentioned before. Uh, testified and said that the carrier ignored their warning signs about the operation. And look, uh, that's probably true. Uh, oftentimes the workers are the first ones complaining and the executives are the last ones responding. I've seen that happen. But this is how you get things done. And ultimately, the um, chief operating officer, Andrew Watterson, told reporters that the uh, executive bonuses would be reduced this year because of that meltdown. 
So I think that's a clear example of the free market. I'm never mad at anybody for making any money. I'm usually just mad at myself for not figuring out how to make as much money as they did. And, and I, I, that's just my uh, collaborative versus competitive attitude. But that's what we've got to do. Now, I, uh, I see that there is a call coming in, but we, we are not able to, to entertain that at this time. Anybody else that's calling either, because they're telling me it's time to go. Banging on the studio door, playing the music in my ear, saying, hey, get this guy off the radio. So I'm going to get off the radio for now so you could keep watching your basketball game, if that's what you're doing. But uh, I'm going to be back tomorrow. So until the next time, hasta la próxima. Take care, good night, and God bless. I am Rich Valdez, and this is America at Night. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.